you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn with me to the book of Nehemiah? Nehemiah. We just finished up by God's grace in uh, seven messages and then a recap, so eight messages on the book of Ezra. And so the next book in your Bible should be the book of Nehemiah. And uh, in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. And uh, so it is good for us to take these two books together. They both disclose to us the dealings of God with His people Israel at the same time period. And there is much for us to glean from these wonderful historical books. Today we're going to be thinking about responding for God's glory. In one real sense, a lot of what you and I do, a lot of what we say, and a lot of the attitudes that we develop in life are based on a reaction. They're based on a response. And it is very important for us to develop the biblical principles and attitudes that will guide us and will direct us to faithfulness to the Word of God and faithfulness ultimately to God Himself and to Christ in our reactions and in our responses to life and to events and to situations that we encounter. The subtitle of the message is the word restoration. Because as we learn from the book of Ezra, God is renewing His people. That was the theme of Ezra. There was a spiritual renewal that was taking place among the people of God. God was renewing His people to their homeland from Babylon. God was renewing the sacrificial system by having the temple to be rebuilt. And the festivals were then renewed. And the people of God were renewed in a spiritual way. They were there and had the priest Ezra, no doubt others, who were carrying on the worship services of the people of God back in Jerusalem. And what a journey that was to go through that book. In Nehemiah, it's going to be more of the same, but let's think about this just a little bit differently. There's spiritual renewal, and then there is going to be fortification. So think of that word you see even as the picture has the, you know, you can see an unfinished wall. Because in the book of Nehemiah, what we're going to find is that God is going to have his people successfully rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And this speaks volumes to me in, a day, in the day and the age in which we live. This speaks volumes to me in the church in which we uh, live today. The church in a broad general sense. It speaks volumes to me about the necessity for spiritual renewal and fortification. That restoration continues to take place through fortification. And we'll think about that as we go through this book. Let's read verse 1. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 1. The words of Nehemiah the son of Hekeliah. 
Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, that is in the 20th year of the king of Persia, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of the brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had, arrived, who, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we need your help this morning. Father, I pray that you would send, oh God, the power of your presence among us. Lord, that you would stay and grip our attention to your word, to you and your work in this historical document, this historical record, O Lord, that you've given for our learning, for our edification, to build us up, to strengthen us, to show us your mighty faithfulness, and no doubt even to glean principles to live by today. And so, Lord, we pray that you would come And you would work in our hearts for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what is our response in troubled times? How do you typically respond when you get the bad news? When times are difficult in your life, what is the average or the typical response that you have? Some of you may default to emotional responses. You may cry very easily when the pressures of life are on you. Some of you may default to kind of a buckle in and get it done kind of default response to the difficulties of life, the challenges of life. Some of us, if we are being attacked or if we're feeling slighted or hurt at someone, we may respond in such a way that we respond with anger, or we may respond with a vindictive uh, spirit that we want to get back at them. Very often, we respond to difficult times by questioning things in our life, questioning whether We have sinned against God, and therefore God is bringing this difficult time upon us. Sometimes we may even question the motives of God himself. Is God really good because of the difficulty that he has allowed or brought into my life? What do we do in a nation this morning that is in moral ruin? How do we respond? I will submit to you this morning that we have in this text... Such a biblical response from a godly man that it would do us good to pay attention to exactly what he did. And so I have four headings to kind of guide and put over our thoughts this morning. Number one is an introduction to Nehemiah. So let's just think for a moment about this man. We saw him in verse 1, Nehemiah the son of Hecaliah. (laughs) And by that information, we still don't know anything. 
Because we don't know who Hekeliah is, and nobody else does either. It's the only time that he's mentioned. So we don't know much about Nehemiah from verse 1. We know that that's his name, and his name is a derivative. It means God comforts. So Nehemiah, even in his name, bears this, as Ezra did, this service to the people of God from their God. This is the year approximately 446, 445 B.C. It's a very significant time in the life of the people of Israel. Many of you may know a lot about the history of Israel. As Christians, as Christians, you should. Your understanding of the people of Israel from the Scriptures and what God has said to them um, will determine pretty much how you interpret the entire Bible. And so we should, as Christians, understand all that we can about God's dealings with his covenant people, Israel, that we see mostly the historical uh, facts of it anyways in the Old Testament. 445, 446 B.C. is a very significant time in the life of the people of Israel. As you recall from the book of Ezra, the people of Israel had sinned against God. And God had promised that if they sinned against him in the way that they did, that he would carry them away, that he would come and he would judge the nation, that he would come and he would chastise them. He would discipline them with the rod or the sword of the foreign nations around them. In 722, the Assyrians invaded northern Israel, known as Israel, as after the divided kingdom, after Solomon. The divided kingdom was all of the northern kingdoms, and the southern kingdom was known as Judah in the south, Judah. And in 722, the Assyrians came in, they invaded the northern kingdom, and they carried away the people captive to a foreign land. In 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, had risen to the world power, and they invaded Judah, the southern kingdom, invaded Jerusalem itself. They came in. They finally, after a period of years, after they had laid siege to the city, they were able to breach the walls and come in and tear the walls down, burn the gates with fire, tear down the temple complex and carry the people away captive to Babylon. God had promised to the prophet Jeremiah that they would be in captivity for 70 years. It's during the 70 year captivity that we have one of the, I think it's probably the most phenomenal of all biblical prophecies in the book of Daniel. Daniel was a prophet who received a prophecy from God that uh, is not comparable by any other in Scripture. So you have Daniel who was reading Jeremiah and praying and thinking about the fact that, hey, it's almost been 70 years. And God gave him the prophecy of what was going to take place from that time until the end. Well, he was one of the people taken into exile. But after the 70-year period was completed, 
God restored his people. He did that, this by moving a pagan king to send the people back. By stirring the hearts of the people to go back to their homeland to rebuild the temple. And God gave them great favor and great success to be able to do that. As we learn from the book of Ezra. And in doing this. God was going to make the way. For his Messiah that was promised to come. It is through this time period. Ezra and Nehemiah. Together with Malachi. That you finish the historical record of the people of God in the Old Testament. So when you get to the end of Nehemiah and Malachi, you you take those two books, you have completed, you have reached the end of the Old Testament historical record. That's why this book is so significant. Because what's going to happen after the history that's recorded in Nehemiah and Malachi is 400 years of silence. Until John the Baptist. Till the angel comes and says, Elizabeth, you're going to bear a son. And he's going to be the forerunner for the Messiah. And so it's very significant to understand what is happening here. To understand that as God gave Daniel a prophecy that lines up with The book of Nehemiah, because when the king gave the issue decree to rebuild the wall, Daniel received from God the revelation that from that time period, from the issue of the decree to rebuild the walls, until the coming of the Messiah and the end takes place, there will be 70 weeks. (laughs) And you have to figure out what that means. The word weeks in the Hebrew is, it means seven. So it can be, uh, there'll be 70 sevens. Sevens what? Seven days, seven weeks, seven months, seven years. Seven, seven year periods. But that's not this sermon. (laughs) That's not this sermon. That's just the wet your appetite. But you need to see that in the historical flow of the people of God, we have reach that moment. We are standing now looking back into the history and seeing this decree is going to take place, which is setting in motion the plan of God, even as he revealed it to his prophet Daniel. So Nehemiah is only mentioned in this book, the book of Malachi, together with him contains the last of Old Testament writings. But if we go on down and we look at the very last verse of chapter 1, we'll find that Nehemiah has a very significant role in the kingdom of Persia. You see it there? Now I was, this is Nehemiah, now I was cupbearer to the king. How many of you today have aspired to that job position in your life? Well, today we don't see a need for it because we live in a uh, democratic society, at least for now. And we don't understand a lot of times how the kings and the monarchy kind of system works. But the cupbearer, at first glance, may not seem as if it's a very significant role. 
But it is a very important role. For Nehemiah to be the cupbearer of the king means that he was constantly where the king was. He was a constant companion to the king himself. There would be no one in the entire realm who would be closer to the king than his cupbearer. Because essentially what he had to do was he had to taste everything that the king ate. And he had to drink everything that the king drank to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. So if someone had a drink for the king, here's a drink, O king. He would look to Nehemiah. Go ahead. Nehemiah would take a drink. If he doesn't fall over dead, then he takes a drink. If he has a meal prepared and the steak is ready, sets it before the king. You're up, Nehemiah. Nehemiah takes a bite. See if he dies. If he doesn't, he can eat. If he does die, long live the king. This is the, it's the way that it worked. But he was a noble man. This would be a very, very significant place for God to put his man. God strategically put his man in this position, and he had arisen to this rank within the kingdom of Persia, so that, so that when he gives a request to actually go back and reestablish the walls of his home city, his homeland, the favor will be in the king's heart to let him go. Because think about it for a moment. <laughs> If you're ruling primarily from one central location, and miles and miles away, you are ruling another nation, would you really want them to be able to fortify themselves? Would you really want them to be established? Or would it not be kind of strategically better if they were kind of left in this weakened condition? Certainly it would. So it would have to be someone that the king really trusted. To be given this opportunity to go back and to do this in the city of Jerusalem. So he had a noble position in the kingdom. That's number one. The introduction to Nehemiah. Number two. The second thing or the second heading that I want us to think about for a moment is the condition of the people and the city. The condition of the people and the city. If you look at verses two to three as we read there. There was a brother that came, Hananiah in verse 2, and some other men from Judah. And he asked, and Nehemiah asked him concerning the Jews who escaped and had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. So what was on his heart, what he wanted to know is how does the people of God fare? How are the people of God? What's their condition back home? And what is the city of God like? And this tells us a lot about the man. You see, because what you talk about and what you're concerned with and what you, uh, you know, if your cousin calls you from, you know, North Carolina and you pick up the phone, what you talk about is often the most important things because you're not going to just waste time. You want to know how are the kids. You want to know how's grandma who might live there close by. You want to know 
How's it going in my family's life? And he's concerned with the people of God and he's concerned with the city of God. Well, he goes on to hear a devastating report because the people are described as being in great trouble and shame. Great trouble and shame. And the city is described as being broken and destroyed. So it's not a, good, it's not a very good report, is it? How are the people? How is the city? The people are troubled and in shame. The city is broken and destroyed. Now we have to understand that when Nehemiah hears these words, this is the people of God. This is the covenant people of God. This is the people of God that are to be on display to display the glory of God, the majesty of God, the character of God to the onlooking world. This is the people of God that have been given promises that God would walk in their midst. He would be their God and they would be his people and they, he would provide for them and he would protect them and they would always be his covenant people. And the city of Jerusalem was the city where God himself placed his name of all the cities in the world. God said, I'm going to establish my name with this city. And it's broken down. And the people are, in, are ashamed. And they're troubled. And this is what Nehemiah hears. And this is what he is faced with. And this is what he must respond to. So that is what we're going to look at, his response. But before we do, I want to tell you a story of a man who lived... Uh, in the 1700s in England, a man who also looked around upon Europe and looked upon the city and looked upon the cities and the people and saw that they were troubled and in shame and that the church was being broken and destroyed. My friend, if you look back, by the way, at what happened in the history of the European churches, you will see exactly where we are today. What happened to them is what is exactly happening to us. His name is Wilbur Wilberforce. And he is, he is a wonderful man to study. He was a God-centered, people-loving politician. In England, beginning from 1784, and he, he stayed in politics for 50 years. He's remembered mainly for his lifelong devotion to the cause of abolishing the African slave trade and then the abolition of slavery itself. He worked tirelessly for this effort. And he wrote a book, only one he wrote that I know of, and it's called a practical view of Christianity. It sounds like a good book for a politician to write. But he's not like the politicians that you think of today. And what he wanted to do in his book, A Practical View of Christianity, was to show that the bulk of Christians in England were merely nominal Christians. They were in name only Christians. They were not passionate about the Word of God. And specifically, they were not passionate and concerned for the true biblical doctrines that were contained in God's Word. 
They were nominal because they had abandoned the true biblical doctrines in favor of a system of ethics and had thus lost the power of ethical life and the political welfare of the people. Does this make sense now? What he's, what, what he's saying, and I'm going to read you a quote, what he's going to say is that when you lose and try to separate true foundational biblical doctrines, biblical truth from ethical life, when you try to separate those two, you actually lose the ethical life. So the morals that can only be maintained through the maintenance of biblical, robust, true biblical doctrines, when when you don't have that, the morals will fade away as a result. And that's exactly true, and it happened there, and it's happening here. Let me give you a quote from him. The fatal habit, the fatal habit of considering Christian morals as distinct from Christian doctrines insensibly gained strength. So he's saying the fatal habit of considering Christian morals as distinct from Christian doctrines insensibly has gained strength. Thus, the peculiar doctrines of Christianity, and you have to devote a lot of time in his book to understand what he means, but he just means the peculiar doctrines, the, the staple doctrines of Scripture. Justification by faith alone, in the work of Christ alone, um, the historically orthodox Christian faith. That's what he means, and you'll have to go and, and read it to find out. But he says, thus the peculiar doctrines... Of Christianity, the depravity of humanity, (laughs) the necessity for a Savior, Christ being the only one, went more and more out of sight. And as might naturally have been expected, the moral system itself also began to wither and decay, being robbed of that which should have supplied it with life and nutriment. And that's exactly what's happening in our country. Because if you think, That you can maintain a moral ethical system apart from objective truth, it cannot happen. Where truth is relative, there can be no maintenance of morals and values. If I can look at you and say, I can put no moral restraint upon your life because there is no objective Truth that transcends times and transcends peoples so that right is right and wrong is wrong no matter where you are and no matter who you are. And when you can't do that because all all truth is subjective to my personal experience. I define truth the way that I want to and you define truth the way that you want to. Then there can be no moral system maintained. Because there's nothing, as he says, that should supply it with life and with nutriment. My friends, we must, we must realize today that one of the great needs of the church and one of the great needs of the nation that we live in is that the people of God, the church, the people of God 
would be revived and renewed and reestablished to the robust, clear, objective truth of the Word of God. And basing our lives and basing our doctrines upon the robust, true, true, clear doctrines that are contained in God's Word began to live a life of obedience and conformity to truth. It's the only hope that we have. So, what is your typical response to difficult times? Think about your response to the life that you're living today in in this morally corrupt nation. Well, I wrote down a few things we could do. We could give up. We could just say, well, the world is what it is. I can't do anything about it, so I'm not going to try. That might be the position that you've taken in your life. You could have, secondly, you could, we could say, well, we'll just give in. Not only give up, but give in to the moral pressures. <laughs> you can't say that's wrong. And when you hear that message, listen, enough. You can't tell us. You can't tell me that. We're not going to put up with that. You can't tell us what's right and wrong. God in that book has no power and authority over my life. You can't make those assertions. You hear that message long enough, you can just give in and say, well, okay, okay, okay. Is that the way you think we should respond? Well, what about a third one? This one, I think, happens, <laughs> unfortunately, way too often. We could just sit and complain about it. We just, we're just going to sit back and complain about it. Everything's so bad, and all we have to do is complain. I hope that will not be our response. Number four, we could also fall into despair. We could look around and we could fall into such a deep depression that we would cry out, and I hope we do this, by the way, come Lord Jesus. But we don't want to fall so far into despair that we lose sight of hope. We don't want to fall so far into despair that we lose sight of who is on the throne and who is in control. So I suggest maybe we do this fifth one. We could respond by remaining filled with hope and perseverance in the work of God. That we would remain filled with hope and we would remain persevering in the work of God. And that brings us to our third point. A response of sorrow. A response of sorrow. So we've had an introduction to Nehemiah, we've had the condition of the people in the city, and now we turn to a response of sorrow. Look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And then in verse 5 and following, it gives his prayer. So we're often, my friends, unmoved and unbroken. We're unmoved at the broken and devastated condition of the world. We're unmoved and unbroken by the situation of our city and of our nation and of the church. 
I believe this has helped to advance a disposition of individualism among many Christians. What do I mean by that? I mean that the response of this kind of condition that we live in, this kind of condition in which the church is today, results in an individualistic response to life. Meaning simply that I, that I create this disposition that chooses to focus on me and my life. Now, think about this with me, friends. This is very, this is very pervasive in our, in our culture. The world's bad. Even, even depending on how puritanical you are in your own thinking and estimation of yourself, you may look at other people and everybody else is bad. Except you, of course, and your family. We tend to further and further isolate ourselves from the issues because this is forcing us to a disposition of individualism. That we choose to simply not focus on the world, not focus on the church, not focus on the brokenness of the society, but to focus on me, myself, and I. To focus on my life. But that's not what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah first responds with sorrow. He's moved so deeply in his heart at the broken condition of the city of God and the shameful condition of the people of God that he is in despair and he begins to cry. And I simply ask you, my brother, my sister, when was the last time that you were moved to tears because of the condition of the world. Maybe the proper response that we should seek to emulate this morning is one of, first of all, sorrow. Jesus said this is a good disposition in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Ezra was genuinely concerned for the glory of God and for the good of the people of God. This is nothing short of a spiritual concern for God's glory and His people. To look out on the world and not just see the violence, not just see the injustice of it all, but to look out upon the world and see that the world that God has created is dishonoring its Maker. That the injustice and the And the evil that's in our own hearts and the hearts of those around us and the actions and the attitudes that are so pervasive in the world today are a dishonor and a disgrace to God. And be broken. Because this is not right. The greatest injustice in the world is not that we get hurt, but that God is dishonored. And that, I believe, is the motivation. It's a spiritual concern for the glory of God and the people of God. What pains me today as a Christian and as a pastor is not that someone else would get biblical doctrine wrong. 
And all oh, you got it wrong, and, and, and I think I've got it right. No, the problem with false doctrines, the problem with not holding to the faith that it has been once and for all delivered to the saints is because if we don't hold to it, we dishonor the Lord. That's what's wrong with it. it it's not that, that we are offended because it is an attack against us, but it is, listen, a dishonor to God. And the people of God being in shambles. The people of God being dispersed and divided and, and at odds with one another. This is a disgrace to God. The people of God, listen, the church is exists to display the kingdom of God on earth. We exist this morning to display the love of God and the mercy of God and the joy of God and the peace of God. And listen, when we're fragmented by doctrine, when we're fa- fragmented by personalities and styles and, and, and all of these things, listen, when we're divided, we are dishonoring God. We are missing our purpose in life. So when Nehemiah saw that the people of God were troubled and in shame, he didn't just feel sorry for them because they were going through difficult times. He, was, he felt sorry for them because they were to be the light of the world. They were to be the salt of the earth. And they were to be a display of the glory of and the grace of God. That's the first response. It's the third point, a response of sorrow, but it's the first response, one of sorrow. Let's look number four and finally at a, res- at the, at a response of prayer. A response of prayer. Let me ask you, when you hear that Is there something that might be in your heart that says, you know, I was thinking it might be something a little more jazzy. (laughs) Prayer? What uh, is that? Is that, you know, is that the punchline? Is that the climax? I mean, is is this this where we're going to go with this sermon? (laughs) Is this the answer? Prayer? Well, let's see. A response of prayer from verses 5 all the way to verse 11. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servant. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. Whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant 
and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. And grant him, that's another word for what? Grant grace. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So our first sermon and the first chapter is going to end on this. There is a condition of brokenness and shame and destruction of the people in the city of God. And the man of God that is strategically placed by the hand of God responds first with sorrow and grief that moves him to cry and then moves him to pray. Moves him to pray. And when he prays, I want you to understand this morning that it is the height of responding in faith. Very often we think we got to get out there and do something. And certainly we should. But let's first realize that the height, the apex of responding in faith to the world that we're living in and to our, the, the, the difficulties that we face in life, the apex of a response of faith is prayer. It is prayer. Prayer is a response that knows that God is the only one who can do what is needed to be done. God is the only one who can bring about the change that we desire in our hearts, in the hearts of our loved ones and our co-workers. It is God alone who can bring about the change that is necessary in the city. It is God alone who can bring about the changes that are necessary in the nation and in the church. It is God alone. And prayer is a response that acknowledges both, number one, human inability. And secondly, it acknowledges God or divine ability. Very quickly, let's break down his prayer. Let me give you four words or four phrases. Number one, write down the word adoration. Adoration. In verses 5 to 6a, we see him reverence God. How do you approach God in prayer? As we look at Nehemiah as a leader, a godly man, and a prayer warrior, we can notice that he has a pattern, and his pattern begins with adoration. He begins to, to exalt God and to ascribe to God his greatness and his love for him. Secondly, in verse 6b, the latter part of verse 6 and verse 7, you can write down the word confession. Because after he adores God for who he is, he, be, he instantly realizes who he is and the people of God are, namely sinners in need of mercy and in need of grace. Then in verses 8 and 9, you can write down this. He prays scripture back to God. It's very important. Let me ask you a question. How many of you use scripture? In your prayer lives. If you, if you have never used scripture in your prayer life. I encourage you. I encourage you to do it. Nehemiah gives us a prime example. Of praying God's own words back to him. <laughs> what better way to talk to God. Than to remind him of what he has said. Right? So that's what he does in those verses. And I want to camp out here just for a couple of minutes. I'll give you a couple of quotes from history. Matthew Henry, the commentator, 
one of the latter-day Puritans, remarked about Psalm 19:14 when he said this, David's prayers were not his own words only, but his meditations. As meditation is the best preparation for prayer. So prayer is the best issue of meditation. Meditation and prayer go together. Isn't that wonderful? So he comes to him in adoration. He confesses his sinfulness and the sinfulness of the people of God. And then he turns his attention to the promises of God as God has revealed them through Moses and the other writers. Puritan preacher Thomas Manton said this. I love this quote. Meditation is a middle sort of duty between the word and prayer and hath respect to both. The word feedeth meditation and meditation feedeth prayer. Have you ever got down to pray or sat down to pray and you didn't know what to pray? You didn't know what to say? This is very good, very good words for us this morning. The duties, he says, must always go hand in hand. Meditation must follow hearing the word and precede prayer. To hear and not to meditate is unfruitful. (laughs) We may hear and hear, but it is like putting a thing into a bag with holes. It is rash to pray and not to meditate. Let me just get my prayer over with. Get my quick prayer over Because I'm supposed to pray. He says it's rashness to pray and not to meditate. What we take in by the word, we digest by meditation, and we let out by prayer. That's my favorite sentence in the quote. What we take in by the word, we digest by meditation, and we let out by prayer. These three duties, he goes on, must be ordered so that one may not jostle out the other. Men are barren, dry, and sapless in their prayers for want, W-A-N-T, lack, for lack of exercising themselves in holy thoughts. In other words, we're sapless (laughs) prayers when we don't meditate and have holy biblical thoughts. And the fourth and the final section to his prayer is he argues in supplication. So write the word supplication. That's a better shorthand. Supplication. He finally gets to his petition. But I want you to notice that in verses 10 and 11, he gives his petition. He asks something from God. Finally, at the end. At the end of his prayer, he begins to ask him for what he wants. And he bases his asking on God's covenant faithfulness. He bases what he's asking on the fact of the nature and the character of God. God, you are the covenant keeping God. You have redeemed us. You have bought us. You have chosen us. You picked us. You Took us out from the other nations of the world. You established us. You delivered us. We are your people. I want you to answer my prayer on the basis of your covenant keeping faithfulness. Can you pray that way today? You best believe that you can if you are a child of God. My friend, the response of prayer is what we must be called to this morning.
We must understand the significance of it. We must understand the spiritual nature of it. And we must understand the necessity of it. Prayer is to spiritual life what breathing is to physical life. Donald Whitney, in his book on spiritual disciplines for the Christian life, points out in a survey of passages that prayer is what is to be expected in the life of the, of the Christian and the life of the church. Matthew 6, 5, Jesus starts out this way, and when you pray. Matthew 6, 6 starts out like this, but when you pray. Matthew 6, 7 says, and when you pray. Matthew 6, 9, pray like this. Luke 11, 9, and I tell you, ask, seek, knock. Luke 18, 1, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray. Paul writes in Colossians 4, 2, continue steadfastly in prayer. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, pray without ceasing. My friends, this morning prayer is expected to be without ceasing. And I'm convinced, no offense to any one of you, I don't have anyone in mind. I have myself in mind. And I look around and I am truly convinced that one of the great defects and difficulties and hurdles and problems of the modern day church is nothing less than her prayerlessness. Her prayerlessness. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this, As it is the business of tailors to make clothes and of cobblers (laughs) to mend shoes, so it is the business of Christians to pray. Let me pray with you. Father, what what a blessing it is to be able to open this book. What a blessing it is to be able to see a godly example of how to respond to a world around him of shame, destruction, to see this man not respond with critical complaints, not to respond with anger or frustration, not to respond by giving in or giving up, but to respond By feeling the true weight of the situation as it is in relationship to you, God. And the impact that that is going to have on the nations of the world of souls. The impact that it has upon the people of God. A response of brokenness, compassion. That led him to pray. To express in no higher form. A crying out to you, O God, the one who has the power to do and to change, the power to move mountains, the power to save lives and souls, the power to restore families and churches and people and nations, the power to beautify and display your children as marvelous pictures of your glorious grace. And may we do no less than him. Lead us to prayer. We ask in Jesus' name.
and amen.